0: As a college student, I had just come into a place of knowing and experiencing my relationship with God the way I talk about it. And so, many of my new experiences as a Christian end up coming up in our discussions here at church. And one of the first things that came up uh, for me as a as a freshman in college, interacting with a group of Protestant young Christians at a college, was they started using terminology that I didn't understand. I was raised Roman Catholic. And so a lot of times the terminology, the phraseology of religious Protestants was foreign to me. I remember very specifically being at my first interdenominational college retreat and having a a young woman around the table ask me, do I have quiet times? Now, I had no earthly idea what she was talking about. Now, I had, mind you, limited exposure to the Bible, but I had not even heard this time, and so I kind of looked at it like, what? what's a quiet time? Over the years, I've heard different phrases used to describe that same experience. How is your devotional? The devotional life. How, how is your walk with the Lord Jesus going? And all these things maybe kind of over the years I've kind of adapted my understanding. I understand what they're after. All of them, if you're curious, are synonyms for the process of seeking God. These are terminology that particularly evangelical Christian churches use to try to encapsulate what it means for an individual to pursue God. Uh, their relationship, their connection, their intimacy, their their religion, their walk with God. So, you know, it, it's seemingly not that foreign of a concept that just the terms are. And unfortunately, my experience too inside this bubble was that oftentimes people used how frequently they were using or having a devotional time, how much of a quiet time life they had, It was kind of a judgment stick. You know, they would ask you questions like, have you spent time in the Word? I remember reading a book by a very famous evangelical writer, and I won't mention her name because it would be unfair to her, but her recollections of her wonderful husband in college included him walking through the cafeteria in the morning at their Christian school and asking people out loud as to shame them, what'd you get out of the Word this morning? And that was like meritorious to this particular author, like it was a good thing that her wonderful, perfect husband was shaming everybody else into not because they weren't spending time with the Word and God every morning. For me, uh, I know that it always felt like work when people talked about: Do you spend time praying? Do you spend time reading? When I used to think of those things, when I when they asked me those questions, it felt like somebody was dumping a big, heavy backpack on my on my back, and I was like, huh. Now, the the, the scripture that people are attempting to try to encourage you and I to enjoy would be from the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 where he says, Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then... Who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? See, the, the way the scriptures speak of our time pursuing, seeking God, is it equating it with a treasure hunt? It's not equating it with going to the gym. You know, when I think about going to the gym, I think, ugh. I'm so grateful for the diet I've stumbled upon. It requires absolutely no physical exercise whatsoever on my part. (laughs) Uh, uh, When I think about, uh, how's your quiet time life? Those questions always made me just want to, ugh, it was just terrible. Because they were were seemingly having to be motivated from a place that I I just didn't, I lacked the desire to do that kind of thing. On the other hand, when I think about how much motivation I would have if somebody told me, you realize, somebody put gold in the ground in your backyard. It would not take me much energy or motivation at all to start digging. If somebody told me there was gold in my backyard, it would not take me any, it wouldn't be a matter of motivation. For me, it's a matter of valuation. Do I consider it important enough to just start digging in, and this is what we are told is supposed to be the nature of people who seek God. We're, it's supposed to be valuable to us, and yet so often it isn't. I think about marriages, and the other night we had our Thursday night, you know, community group here at the chapel, and uh, you know, it was uh, a testament to how God has been very good to so many of us, but it was also heartbreaking because the statistic that half of all marriages fail pretty much worked out that way in our room, that so many spoke of the heartbreak of their parents splitting up. Now, that statistic isn't necessarily accurate, and I could go into that, but I won't. Uh, What I do know from my experience as a pastor is that most marriage failures have something to do with the absence of intimate time together, conversation and life and sharing that ultimately leads to physical expressions of love. And in this absence, the absence of emotional and physical affection and intimacy, oftentimes bad things happen. People begin to look to others for that relational intimacy. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, the great Reformed Baptist, said, We know of no cure for the love of evil in a Christian life like abundant "...fellowship with the Lord Jesus, dwell much with Him, and it is impossible for you to be at peace with sin." You know, the choice of his language in the 19th century might make some uncomfortable when he uses the word intercourse to describe the intimacy people have with Jesus. I don't know about you, but sometimes when people talk about their relationship with Jesus in in really tender, emotional terms, maybe it's that I'm a guy, it makes me really uncomfortable. Even when we sing songs about God being our love, there's just something that makes me go, eww. And again, I'm sorry if that disappoints you, but it does. It tends to make me think, I... I really don't know Jesus with that kind of tenderness and intimacy. And yet what we're called to as Christians is the same level of connection with him. And it obviously won't take on all of the characteristics of a human relationship, but all of us are in the same way we would pursue treasure in our backyard. God is wanting us to see time spent with him as the same sort of valuable thing to be pursued. And so we have to ask the question, why isn't that the case? We ask that in the context of our mission experiment. This is our month-long series. We're in the middle of it. If you've missed any of them, you can get them online. You can read on my blog all the daily devotionals that are sent out. If you Include your email this week i 'll make sure to get you looped into the balance of this month. You can pick up your uh, your mission experiment membership card. It looks like a blockbuster card it's in the back and, and just to remind you that what we 're up to, which is to say, we want to be people who are sensitive to opportunities to care for others who might be looking for the Lord. They might be looking for his love. and so for you and I, in the midst of this mission experiment, the question is. Not just do we know our strategy, which was week one, or last week we talked about knowing our story. Perhaps in the midst of that discussion, some of you have had to ask some hard questions about whether or not you know your Savior. Do you really know Him? Do you really enjoy Him? One reason some might not share their relationship with God with others is because it isn't the source of their life each day. It isn't on the tip of their tongue, like when they found someone they think they really love. Perhaps your fellowship with the Holy Spirit isn't providing you with a joy that is contagious. Perhaps it's non-existent. For many of us, the experience of knowing God is foreign, and perhaps we've chalked it up to what should be the Christian experience in the 21st century. J.I. Packer, ironically, in his book Knowing God, says this, if our God is the same as the God of the New Testament believers, how can we justify ourselves in resting content with an experience of communion with Him and a level of Christian conduct that falls so far below theirs? If God is the same, this is not an issue that any one of, the, any one of us can evade. I watch a, a television show, and my wife often wonders why I watch it. It's called Gold Rush. Are you familiar with this on the Discovery Network? Like the first season of it, it was like, oh, I hope it works out for them. Now they're like three, four seasons into it, and these knuckleheads don't have any idea what they're doing. And after a while, I get frustrated, and she's like, why do you keep watching this show? All you do is yell at the guys. Because they, they're following this guy, Todd, who just has pipe dreams. You know, he just he has zero seeming wisdom to his life. And so they're constantly like being led into these rabbit trail goose chase I mean, it's like, hey, I think there's gold up there. No understanding of how you'd actually discern where the gold was. Just just shots in the dark, like playing the lottery. And he constantly is saying, hey, but what if we find some? And then everybody kind of goes, okay, he's such a powerful personality and the leader of the show, so I'll follow him there. And then by season's end, they're all like, I'm gonna kill him. I just wasted four months of my life. I and mean, that's literally how the season one, two, three, they've all gone And I keep yelling at these guys, why do you keep going back with him? Why do you you keep seeking after something that you have no clue whether it's going to actually happen? There's absolutely no, no sense that this would be real. The good news for you and I is that the scripture Jesus says to us in Matthew 7, the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks the door will be opened. He has told us that if we will mine the turf that is seeking him, if we'll actually do it, he's promised it's there. He said the gold is, is there. It's not like you're going to dig and then you're going to dig and you go, oh man, what a disappointment. I'm never following him again. Most of us, the problem is we've never really thought of it like gold, so we've never really put ourselves to digging. And Jesus is calling us to kind of reorient our thinking this treasure would and should become something in our lives that we would share with others and they would want it. The treasure of which I speak is intimacy with God's presence in our lives, the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And I want to talk about two things this morning from our passage here in Acts chapter 6 about intimacy with the Spirit. And the first thought I'd like to share with you this morning with regards to our passage in Acts 6 is that intimacy with the Spirit provides his wisdom and power and we look at Stephen's life and for those of you who aren't familiar with who Stephen is he was one of the first deacons you can read about this in all of Acts chapter 6 he's one of the ones they set aside and said this is a person who has the gifts of caring for the needs of the poor and so he had these great either administrative gifts or compassion gifts. He loved people, and so they put him in charge of feeding and this feeding program they had within the church. The second part of Acts chapter 6, you see Stephen on the side for fun told people about Jesus and did miraculous stuff. So by gifting, he was a deacon, but by practice, he would just like to tell others about his relationship with Jesus. And you see within the context of his life And in particular, this experience he's having where he is being persecuted, and if you would read on in chapter 7, they stone him to death. He's the first recorded Christian martyr. This guy, Stephen, we can discern some things about his relationship with God from this text. And the first is that his wisdom and his power, they were born in intimacy with the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, it says this, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power. So there we have right away that this is a characteristic of his life. In Ephesians, it talks about being filled with the Spirit. This is what they're talking about as well, the same language. He's a man full of God's grace and power. It provided the great joy of his life. It was really what, from day to day, meant something to Stephen He performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Now, this is really critical to understand. It's talking about the Spirit speaking to him while he is talking to others. So what that clearly means is that Jesus was helping the brother out. It wasn't like he was so wise and so amazing and he just had all the right answers because he's so learned. As he was going, his experience of walking with God included a component where he's saying, I'm getting wisdom from the Spirit. It gave him not only wisdom, but all of the things that were happening in his life were happening as a result of the Spirit's movement in his life. All of the evidences of power, all of the courage it would take to stand up the people who now hate him, who are speaking ugly to him, all of that is a product of him being full of a sense of God's presence in his life. This was happening within Stephen's heart. It was built through conscious dependence on the presence of God and this is how it is for you and I God wants his power to be evidenced in our interactions with those who don't know his love now that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to like be doing healings and everything at the office it it does mean however though there are going to be people that if you are attentive to it God will use you to help them see hear and begin to understand the call He has for them, which is to follow Jesus. God wants this power to be evidence, and the evidence of this power is the wisdom He would give us along the way, wisdom that brings life change to people. This is actually a possibility. It's not only a possibility, it's a promise, and it's rooted in the reality of the promise from Jesus that the Spirit lives in each and every believer the doctrine of God's presence. We speak of it at Christmas time, Emmanuel, God with us, and we love singing songs about it, but sometimes consciously we actually forget day to day the reality that God lives within the heart of every believer. The Holy Spirit lives inside the person who would confess Christ. A.W. Tozer writes At the heart of the Christian message is God Himself waiting for his children to push in to conscious awareness of his presence. That type of Christianity which happens to be in vogue knows this presence only in theory. So for many of us, our experience with Jesus just is seemingly nowhere near what either a New Testament experience with Jesus would look like. And that's not to say that they didn't have their own set of problems. They did. It didn't mean that their lives got perfect. It just means that they were seemingly very tuned to the reality of the presence they, of God. They made all kinds of mistakes. In some ways, culturally, they were funky and had some really weird stuff going on, stuff that doesn't manifest itself in our churches at all in the 21st century. So it's not like these, these people were really super well put together. They just had something inside them, the presence of the Holy Spirit that said, there's something very real there, and our hearts thirst for this. Jesus says this in John chapter 14. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The word another is the Greek word alos, and there is significance to why I would actually mention the Greek word. The word means another of the same kind. Now, I, I came upon this discussion about the significance of this particular Greek word in interacting with Muslims who use the New Testament to try to explain why Muhammad was actually the one that Jesus was talking about here in John chapter 15, they would say, or John chapter 14, they would say that when Jesus says that another is coming, it would be another of the same kind. And they would then say, because Jesus was a man, they're not talking about the Holy Spirit, they're talking about another of the same kind, another man is going to come. And that really threw me, because I thought, well, they're right. Jesus did use the, the, the term, alos, One of this, another of the same kind. And so it was puzzling to me and disturbing to me. I thought, well, how can the the Holy Spirit be of the same kind? And then a friend of mine pointed out to me the obvious, which is that Jesus, we believe, and Jesus taught and scripture taught that he was both God and man. That when Jesus said another of the same kind is coming, he meant of the same being that one of the, another of the same deity, that the Holy Spirit, not to mention the fact that the text makes it very clear he's talking about someone who will be with them and in them. So a human being couldn't be in you if you tried, but it's significant that Jesus is making a statement about his own deity in this moment. He's saying the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, we are the same being. And so a believer in Jesus actually has The spirit of the living God living inside of them, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity lives in the physical body of each believer, as it says in 17b of John chapter 14, he lives in you, he will be with you. And so a question for all of us is how do we become more attuned to the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives? How do we really grow in our intimacy with the Holy Spirit? Like a marriage where you would want two people to spend time together and a relationship where you'd say, you know, if we're gonna grow in this relationship, we've gotta actually connect at an emotional level. How do I do this? How is this wisdom, this power, this sense of the Holy Spirit dispensed? And the answer is through prayer, through meditation on his word, through time spent seeking to know more of the God who rescued you. There is no substitute, friend, no substitute whatsoever for time spent in the things that God has given us to understand who He is. Tozer says this as well. A, generations of, a generation of Christians reared among push buttons and automatic machines is impatient of slower and less direct methods of reaching their goals we have been trying to apply machine age methods to our relationship with God. And I have to tell you, I'm as guilty as anybody. Over the course of my Christian life, which is about three decades old now, for most of that, I have been hoping that God would just make it easy. As if, if you want to continue with the gold mining analogy, I would just simply walk into the backyard and the gold nuggets would right be right there on the surface for me to just pick off. When in reality, Jesus has said, because he wants us to value this, you're going to dig for this a bit. It's going to require some mining. If you and I see it as valuable enough, we we will mine with all of our heart. And it is in his presence, as King David wrote in Psalm 23, Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we'll fear no evil because he's with us. It's it's in his presence that we begin to experience a wisdom and a courage to face trials, to face people, to to do any number of things that we seem to be a little skittish about. It's in his presence. It's his presence in us that gives us these gifts. I have a brother-in-law who is a bigwig at JPL, Jet Propulsions Laboratory here in Pasadena. Now here in Pasadena JPL's a big deal. Caltech is owns the JPL for NASA. Caltech was recently once again voted the top school in the world. So if you go to Caltech you're impressive. If you work at JPL after being at Caltech you're impressive. If you are a muckety-muck and on the leadership of JPL in this community you're power. You're the man. You're the woman. Whoever you are, you, you, got serious, you got serious status. My brother-in-law is a muckety-muck. So much so that when people tell me, you know, uh, I, I'll ask them, where do they work? And then they'll first kind of take that position with me like, I'm a Caltech grad who works at JPL. What do you do? You know, and, and then I'm like, I'm a minister, sorry. You know, it's kind of like, it's a very disappointing experience for them. But then I tell them, oh, my brother-in-law's... Over there, he's part of the leadership group over there, and they go, well, what's your brother-in-law's name? Maybe he works for me. (laughs) And then I drop my brother-in-law's name, and their jaw drops. Oh, well, let me be respectful to you now. (laughs) Now, the whole game changes all of a sudden. The fact that I know him, people are going, oh, wow, you must really be smart. And so every now and again, when I go to meet my brother-in-law for lunch, uh, 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 where he lives out there near JPL, Um, he'll introduce me to people as his brother-in-law, and then he'll tell them what I do for a living. I told him to quit doing that because I wanted people to think I was one of his engineers. You know, don't tell them I'm a minister. Tell them this is Chuck, and they'll just assume because I'm near you that I've got real brains, and they will treat me with grand respect. Now, i got to tell you, hanging out with my brother-in-law, he's not only... A muckety-muck rocket science scientist, but for fun, he invests money for all these millionaires around here. So kind of like his, like for fun on the side, he does all this investment stuff. And so he gives me limited advice because I have limited resources. And he's kind of become this resource for me in life. Well, you know, not only how do you love your wife well, he's been married to my sister longer than I've been married to my wife, I begin to like soak in, and he's a believer, so I want to know a lot of what he thinks about things and how he reconciles a bunch of different things in the world together in his position. I find myself sitting with him and literally getting wiser just by being with him. You know, I f- and, and I'm certainly perceived as smarter. That's for darn sure. This is, in effect, what is going to happen to you and me as we are close and intimate with the Spirit's presence in our life. We, we find ourselves with a new storehouse of wisdom and we find ourselves feeling stronger even though we know it's not us. We know that somebody who loves us and treats us like family is with us and is going to empower us. Second thing I'll share with you today, in addition to intimacy with the Spirit providing wisdom and power, the second thing is that intimacy with the Spirit Produces the evidence of his presence. In Acts chapter 6, I'm going to skip down to verse 15. And all of these people who were opposed to Stephen as he spoke said they looked intently at him and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I love this passage because it doesn't say that he was an angel. And this isn't people who were religious people, his followers, or people that were in the Christian community that looked at him and, and just wanted to see that he had some kind of spiritual thing going on that made him look like an angel. These are people that didn't like him. These are people that were persecuting him. And, and they said, you know, he, he looks like an angel. I mean, that must have been amazing. There was a sense that people had when they were around him. There was evidence of the presence of God's Spirit, even as Stephen spoke. And the, the people that were engaging with him, you can read about this in the, in the text in verses 12 and 13. They stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They, they seized Stephen and brought him in before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. So these people are after his head, So in the middle of all this, these people who don't like him are even getting a sense that the presence of God is pretty real with this cat. I would say a couple of things about what we talk about when we mean intimacy with the Spirit, producing the evidence of his presence. Uh, The most obvious from our passage here is that understand something that people will oppose you if you align yourself with Jesus. Jesus. If they oppose Jesus, they will oppose his followers. We can't expect that we would be spared of this. And Stephen wasn't being persecuted because he was serving the poor as a deacon. It was because he was proclaiming that there was one way to know salvation. What he was teaching was what incensed his hearers. In Acts 7.51, he referred to them as stiff-necked. In Acts 7.56, he looked up to the skies and said, look, I see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. He, he's referring to Jesus as having all authority of being God himself. It angered these people so much what he was teaching that it says in Acts chapter 7, they put their hands over their ears, kind of like Miracle Max from The Princess Bride. I'm not listening. I mean, you know, they just honestly did not want to hear it anymore. Sorry, once again, referring to a movie from many, many, many moons ago. People have always opposed Christianity because it requires an intellectual, philosophical, and religious paradigm shift. And frankly, I can tell you, that's just uncomfortable. We shouldn't be overly concerned that others don't like the scriptures or the church. They always have. They always will. Our job is to simply love people well, to share the gospel, and to ignore results. Because clearly, Stephen wasn't succeeding. They killed him. This wasn't received well. (laughs) So you can never say, we should be really concerned about the results. People are leaving the church because we're teaching this or teaching that. I think the first thing we've got to ask is, are we doing what Jesus would have us do? In John 15, Jesus says this, no longer do I call you servants, For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give you. These things I commanded you so that you would love one another. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. They persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Not only will I say to you that that's just something you've got to get past if you're going to follow Jesus, is that there's not everybody in the room is going to like you. But I will say people will, because of intimacy with the Spirit, they will see Christ in you. They will actually begin to see, over time, the development of character that reflects the love of Jesus. As you consciously walk in the presence of the Holy Spirit living in you, the character of Jesus will become evident to those around you, even those who oppose you. Stephen's face was like that of an angel, and having Christ's character manifest in us happens through intimacy with him, it doesn't imply that we're going to live lives of ease. We very well could end up like Stephen one day. But like Jesus, we can know the joy of the Holy Spirit consciously as we depend on the Holy Spirit in our lives. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. It was because of the presence of his, his Father and the Spirit Jesus has said to us that it glorifies Him for us to, quote-unquote, bear fruit. And this is another one of those Christian terms that kind of really can throw you. Like, oh, are you bearing any fruit? Uh, When people say stuff like that to people who've never been to church before, I can tell you as somebody who didn't grow up a Protestant, that's just a funky thing to say to somebody. Um, What Jesus is talking about comes from Galatians chapter 5. He lists out the fruits of the Spirit, that things that would be evidenced in our lives, that bring attention to Him. And in Galatians 5, there are all sorts of things that are called not of the Spirit, flesh, but then there are these fruits. In verse 22 of Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, uh, uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So how do we make fruit grow? I want to put a orange tree in our backyard. That's kind of one of the things I've asked Carolyn if I have permission to do. Because it's California and it makes good sense. You know, you, if you can grow citrus, grow it. Well, do you, to make a to make an orange tree begin to produce oranges, you don't stand around the tree and go, come on, produce some fruit already. You don't shame the tree because it's not producing anything yet. You don't stand around and make it feel bad for being an unproductive tree and you, you take care of it. You nurture it. You tend to the conditions that make it possible for it to grow. You till the soil. You clear the weeds. You water it. And you make sure it gets plenty of sunshine. See, the growth comes as a result of that. We don't stand and shame or threaten to burn it down if it doesn't come up with something quick. In the same way... We don't determine to be more gracious or kind or holy. We tend to the business of enjoying the presence of the Holy Spirit. We determine to cultivate a life that will help us be intimate with the presence of God in our lives, and that gives us an opportunity to see things grow. See, in the absence of actually enjoying and walking with and being connected to the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, There isn't going to be the production of fruit naturally in our lives. What often happens is is that people begin to do the things that they think they're supposed to do that are right. And because they think they did them, they become very uppity and snotty and self-righteous about it. God is calling Christian believers to a daily recognition of their own need for him. These Practices or these means of cultivating a life that is sensitive to the Spirit include public worship. You're here today because we believe we're supposed to corporately worship together. We're supposed to hear the Word of God taught. It also includes the kind of corporate prayer and corporate contemplative times of prayer like we have at our prayer chapel on Sunday nights. Personal study of God's Word a daily seeking of understanding through the teachings of other brothers and sisters, whether it be reading other books or devotional studies, personal prayer, journaling our thoughts, meditating on God's work in our lives. These disciplines are what we do to pursue intimacy with God and awareness of His Holy Spirit in our lives. The results of our character and the fruit of any impact we make in our lives as believers is something that God does, not something that we muster up the self-will to do and then show it off the fruit is something that glorifies him i i have to tell you that up until 2008 my devotional life and i'd been a pastor for 15 years was what i would call sketchy i mean it was it was barely existent I didn't pray much. I didn't, on a personal level, I didn't read much. And yet I functioned in ministry and life. I would always have told people, oh, yes, you need the Lord. You need, and I would even have taught you need to have daily time with God. But there was some, like, disconnect in me that made me think, you know, it's really not that important. I can kind of carry this on my own. As one of my mentors is fond of saying, when God wants all hell to break loose in your life, all he has to do is nothing. And Because he's constantly holding our lives together. And when I failed after many years to kind of give him the deference and the respect that is true and due him in that regard, he allowed my life to come unglued. And in this really dark moment uh, where I had to seek him at a place that I had never sought him before, something was birthed in me that has continued to this day. And I don't say it so that you'll say, wow. What an impressive guy. He has an amazing devotional life. He has quiet times. Nothing like that going on in my, I'm telling you, it is a real sense in my own life that God has made clear to me he's not going to let me go day to day thinking I can manage the stress, the ministry, the different things a part of my life. He has said, I want you to know that I'm in control of your life. I want you to know that I love you. I want you to find your joy and your purpose, and I want you to find your identity in me. My devotional life pre-2009 was virtually non-existent because it was a have-to, not a need-to. Because I didn't value what I was going to find when I started digging. And after five years of being more aware of my own brokenness and my need for the gospel five years of journaling thoughts, five years of daily seeking and reading, I can tell you I cannot believe that I'd spent the first 25 years of my Christian experience with sporadic attempts to pursue the word. And, and it's only because of how much I didn't value what I would have found. I, and I had to come to terms with that. And in, in, in my life, it was a crash that got me to say, I need this. This isn't something that I have to do. This is something that if I don't have, I'm not going to be able to see the world the way I need to see the world. I leave you today with this thought from Charles Spurgeon. Like a tree, he bears sweet fruit, not to hang on boughs, but to be gathered by those who need grace, whether it's Work, to be, to part, uh, work be to pardon, to cleanse, to preserve, to strengthen, to enlighten, to quicken, or to restore, is ever to be had from him freely and without price. Nor is there one form of the work of grace which he has not bestowed upon his people. As we day by day receive grace from Jesus and more constantly recognize it as coming from him. We shall behold him in communion with us and enjoy that felicity of communion with him. Let us make daily use of our riches and ever repair to him as to our Lord in covenant, taking from him the supply of all we need with as much boldness as men take money from their own purse. Let us pray. Today, Lord, we recognize that you are calling us to a depth of relationship with you, but the transformation that has to take place in us uh, is really...